to the Weekly Review with Roman. Today it's Friday, October 30th, 2020. Thank you so much for tuning in. We are broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. We're in San Francisco, and uh, Mutiny Radio sits on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatush Ohlone peoples, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. And uh, there's a series of links we have on our webpage, which you can go to at weeklyrev.org. And below you will find uh, the Segorate Land Trust, which is a place folks can donate, as well as indigenous mutual aid, a map which shows you which indigenous lands you're on, Radio Free Alcatraz, as well as a thread of native news outlets and more information. So please do check that out. Again, weeklyrev.org, and go to the Land Acknowledgement tab. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, thanks so much for taking a deep breath. Got a lot of news to go over. Um, have an interview coming up around one o'clock, and yeah, oh goodness, okay, might as well just start going into it. I'll provide a trigger warning because we're talking about current events uh, from a realistic perspective, and it's pretty fucking terrifying and traumatizing, and wow, what a great plug for the show. Don't you just want to keep on listening? And that's why we play music, because uh, there's also a lot of beauty in the world. Started off with a song called Revolution by Heartless Bastards. There's no question mark at the end of their name, that's just me, the way I pronounce it, I guess. And then a song by Lucius called Tempest. We've got some more music coming up along the way. First up, I wanted to just share some information I just read. And this was shared by About Face Veterans Against the War. And you can follow them on Twitter at Vets About Face. And they say this selection is critical as vets. And as vets, we know troops are often put in questionable positions and told they have no choice. You have options and we're here to help. Request support or submit a report at bit.com ly forward slash troop help and that will bring you to a page uh, where you can fill out your information and again this is for folks who are either in active duty or family members of folks who are um, if you know someone who is um, there's just um, a lot of support out there that I think folks should know about so and it's a secure form as well so again if you go to bit.ly forward slash troop help uh, so, I, mean, I feel like it's a broken record here. The police keep killing people and assaulting people, and um, yeah, that's continuing to happen. And I don't mean to be flippant about it. It's just unending, and the only way to stop it is for the police to be defunded and abolished. And I know I'm not alone when I say that. However, it would be really helpful if uh, a lot of folks who have positions of power could at least uh, agree on that, could at least move forward on that instead of just paying lip service. And I think folks would also recognize that uh, if you fund communities, if you ensure folks have housing and food and health care and education and get their basic needs met, these uh, things that they call crime won't, won't be happening. And um, I don't know why I'm still on Nextdoor. Maybe it's just because I like to complain about it and it seems like so small but it, I feel like it's just representative of the larger picture and they're in, here in San Francisco there's a lot of folks on next door who are very extremely anti-unhoused people and in a way where they end up attacking folks who are suffering and in poverty and it's so disturbing that they spend their time and energy picking on folks who have 
very little right now in terms of getting their basic needs met instead of, I don't know, the wealthy landlords or the billionaires who live in the city who could very well pay to house people and still be okay. And they choose not to. And it's just, it's so fucking outrageous and disgusting. And I've also heard that the and that the Board of Supervisors had voted to, or I don't know if they, so City Hall, long story short, has initially at the beginning of the COVID-19 outbreak, they had decided to house people in hotel rooms, which is awesome. And then now they're deciding to unhouse people, which is just the stupid, it's stupid, it's cruel, it's pointless, and it's going to cause a lot of harm. Oh, and it's so frustrating. And there are so many vacant units here and around the country. There is more than enough fi- places for people to live. It, it shouldn't be, it's like not a complicated issue. I recognize there's a lot of complexity and a lot of gray in the world. And also there are certain things where it doesn't make any sense that anyone should be without shelter. And I feel like the police go along with that because they evict people and because they often harass and assault and arrest people who are unhoused and continue to pile on the trauma that people have already experienced. And a reminder for, not that one needs to have a reminder to have empathy for people or to humanize people, but it's worth sharing that odds are, especially in San Francisco, the majority of folks are any of the following. Previously housed San Franciscans, people who have suffered a brain injury, survivors of domestic violence, veterans, LGBTQ folks who have been kicked out of their homes. That's just a few, that's just like a small portion, you know, and like, and those qualifiers shouldn't have to, someone shouldn't have to qualify as one of those things in order to gain sympathy or empathy. But hopefully with those reminders, people who are quick to judge or to cast blame on folks who are unhoused uh, can have some understanding of what people are going through. And also a reminder in terms of addiction and whatnot, many folks do drink or and or do drugs. There's a number of reasons. And one would be that it sometimes helps people keep warm. And we don't have shelter, of course you want to keep warm. <sighs> and it's easier for me to talk into this mic than to reply to people on next door because I start to reply and then I'm like, nope, this is just, <sighs> I don't want to hear responses from people that, uh, just refuse to see other people as human. It's just fucking heartbreaking. And I feel like there's a lot of us who at this point in time would have assumed that humans have evolved enough. And it's so disheartening to recognize that, nope. And also here in the United States, there's so much propaganda. And I recognize there's propaganda around the world. Here in particular, the United States is really good at it. They get you when you're really young, myself included. And so much of our time is spent undoing that, unlearning some lies that we've been taught and the behaviors we've been taught. Just to create a better world. And I think it's possible. And, you know, it's it's still possible despite how disturbing the world is and unjust it is. And the fact that people are destroying the, the climate, they're still <sighs> destroying trees and nature 
water. And again, it's the big companies that are doing this and the corporations. It's the idea that it's put on to individuals as to whether or not we recycle as if it's somehow all on us. How about the fucking automobile industry? They've already pissed me off twice today in general. The idea that everyone needs to drive a car instead of supporting mass transit, bicycles, other other means of transportation. I got nothing against it as a as an individual vehicle, sure. Great. Especially electric ones, hybrids, sure. It's the idea that somehow everyone has to have one. And it's forced on people as well as this idea of oh I'm gonna be an adult when I learn how to drive. And to me that always I bought into that and also just felt so fake because I don't like to drive. And if, again, it's this idea of individual versus the whole. The more we can do for the greater good and the more people, the better off things will be for everyone. And I think cars oftentimes have that, uh, there's that individu individu individualistic aspect. And I recognize it's all someone might have at some point. It's more just the um, how they've been marketed and at the expense, I should say, at the expense of nature, in terms of building all the highways, and at the expense of public transit and accessible transit that everyone can, can get to regardless of ability to pay, regardless of mobility options. <sighs> all right. Well, and that's about that. No, I'm not going to wrap up the show just yet because there's a lot of news, <laughs> news stories to get to. That's more of a calm rant. There's that uh, the E word elections coming up, one of the elections, one of the many elections, and it's always just a bunch of fucking nonsense. And there are things on the ballot that I care about, and I do believe will make a difference. Vote no on 22, vote for Jackie Fielder, etc. I shouldn't say etc. There's a, we did post, and by we, I mean uh, uh, this guy. Anyway, we posted a link to various voter guides on our weekly review webpage. If you go to the October 23rd tab, there's a list. Um, one is a nationwide. The rest of them pertain to the Bay Area. And I, while I don't agree with all of them, I feel like in at least a, there's at least one element of each of them that I agree with. Uh, I don't mean to sound so obtuse or just, you know. Uh, but they all, there's at least one piece to each of them. That's why I add them. So I, I don't, uh, there's not one of them that I fully agree with. Let's put it that way. But bits and pieces. And it's uh, good just to... Uh, have an understanding of what else is out there. Okay. <sighs> Time for some news, and then we'll play some more music. Ah. Start off with uh, talking about police, and uh, I feel it's a systemic issue. And again, it's just part of capitalism, where if you have these jobs that uh, require people to harm each other, that's just fucking disgusting. There's an article in The Guardian that uh, came out on October 29th, which was yesterday. Um, nearly 1,000 instances of police brutality recorded in U.S. anti-racism protests. And also it's this idea that people are also pr protesting against police violence, and the police respond not by saying, oh, we're not that bad, but they respond by being like, yeah, we're, we're bad. We're just going to like fucking assault people and kill people and arrest people. This article is written by Toby Thomas, Adam Gabbett, and Kaelin Barr. Police attacks on citizens and journalists over five months accompanied by incidents of tolerance of or collaboration with far right. 
The United States is currently experiencing one of the longest continued periods of civil unrest in generations after demonstrations sparked by George Floyd's death expanded to protests against uh, black Americans killed by police and systemic racism in the country. Retaliation by police against civilians and the press was widely documented in the first wave of protests, but as the protests have continued, so too has the violence. There has not been a single week without an incidence of police brutality against a civilian or a journalist at a protest in the U.S. since the end of May. At least 950 instances of police brutality against civilians and journalists during anti-racism protests have occurred in the past five months, according to the data collected by Bellingcat and Forensic Architecture and analyzed by The Guardian. The data, and I'm just going to have to interrupt here because uh, there's a, an ad for Borat in the middle of this article. And, uh, you know, a time and a place for everything, but it just it's the picture is just Borat wearing a mask around his genitals. And it's just the uh, juxtaposition here is just... Okay, continuing on. The database shows more than 1,000 violations, including more than 500 of instances of police using less lethal rounds, pepper spray, and tear gas, which of course can have lasting effects, uh, 60 incidents of officers using unlawful assembly to arrest protesters, 19 incidents of police being permissive to the far right and showing double standards when confronted with white supremacists, five attacks on medics, and 11 instances of kettling. Originally, the data focused on attacks on the media, and almost 150 incidents were identified by June 2nd, but the collection was expanded to include incidents involving civilians during the protest, too. The data is probably an undercount, as it only contains documented and verified incidents. More than 200 incidents took place in Portland, where police spent more than $117,500 on tear gas and less lethal munitions in a six-week period from late May, according to Oregon Live. Also, if you happen to be listening to this podcast and you're in Portland and you vote and you haven't voted yet, uh, vote for Sarah and not Ted Wheeler. That's, I'm assuming you, you would, but uh, you never know.
not just physical. So. Um, they did so recently, even giving folks a ride here in San Francisco a few weeks ago. It's hard to keep track of time, but it happened here in Berkeley. Uh, white supremacists. It's fucking disgusting. Okay. All right. So moving along, 19 incidents show police being permissive to far-right members and treating white supremacists favorably at protests. The Seattle's police department was involved in at least seven of these instances. The death of Summer Taylor, a 24-year-old protester who was hit by a car, which was able to get through a police blockade. Another notable instance took place in Washington, D.C., where the Ohio National Guard deployed a known neo-Nazi to the anti-racism protests taking place in the city, while in Salem, Oregon, a video shows an officer advising armed white counter-protesters on how to avoid arrest as police prepare to enforce a curfew. In Olympia, Washington, a police officer posed for a photo with individuals who appeared to be members of the Three Percenters, a right-wing militia group, while in Philadelphia, officers stood by as a group of right-wing men attacked a journalist. This is vigilante activity and the anti-Black Lives Matter protesters believe is an extension of police. And in some cases, the police agree that, oh wait, this is, an, uh, this is a vigilante activity that Portland State University researcher at the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right. Sort of one hand washes the other hand. The police are unable to come in and beat down the protesters in a way in a way sometimes, and so the far right, which absolutely supports the police, does it for them. Ross, who wrote the book Against the Fascist Creep and contributed to a damning Amnesty International report, which found police had frequently failed to and individuals at peaceful assemblies, said police enabling of the far right was not a universal reality, but said that some police departments have been this for a long time. The use of unlawful assembly to arrest protesters tactic in shutting down protests. The data documents 60 incidents of officers using unlawful assembly. The right of assembly is clearly laid out in the First Amendment of the Constitution, which says and to petition of grievances. But experts argue that police have failed to abide. Abu El Haj, a professor 
there have been developments rise of far-right nationalism and widespread anger at the handling seeing just protests in U.S. history. While the police killing of George Floyd was the spark clear that anger at racism, bigotry, and injustice more generally contributed to the mass mobilizations we've seen across America and the world. And again, you can find this article uh, at The Guardian, theguardian.com, and we'll be sharing it on our weekly review page later, and that's at weeklyrev.org. All right, going to take a break, play some music, and we'll be back in a bit.
Lose Red Bait with their version of Nazi Punk's Fuck Off. Before that, we heard Emma Ruth Rundle with Dead Set Eyes and the demo version. And this was from this, those two songs are from Riffs for Reproductive Justice by Black Flags Over Brooklyn. You can buy the album and listen to it, uh, download over at Bandcamp. If you go to blackflagsoverbrooklyn.bandcamp.com, you can find the album there. And for that, Dinosaur Jr. with Feel the Pain. It's uh, perhaps more of a well-known song from the 90s. <sighs> oh, yeah. Here's some uh, news in about places other than the United States. And, uh, I think it's helpful to hear that. Here we go. Well, we're beginning today's show in Bolivia, where former President Evo Morales' political party, MAS, is claiming victory in Sunday's presidential election. The results of the twice-postponed election have not been officially announced, but the centrist former President Carlos Mesa conceded defeat Monday as exit polls show Luis Arce has won over half of the vote, giving him an outright win. If confirmed, it will put the Socialist Party back in power, putting an end to the far-right government which overthrew Evo Morales in a coup November 2019. Protests have rocked Bolivia for months now, calling out the right-wing government's use of military and police repression and violence against indigenous communities. At a news conference Monday in Buenos Aires, Argentina, former President Evo Morales responded to the election's outcome. Sooner or later, we are going to return to Bolivia. That's not up for debate. And yes, there are many processes which are part of a dirty war and so many lies. Bolivian brothers and sisters, with experience and with Lucho president, once again will bring Bolivia forward, will pick Bolivia up. In a short time, Bolivia will once again be enshrouded in economic growth like we had. This is the only political movement, the movement towards socialism, the political instrument for sovereignty for the people, that has a vision for the country, has a program. That's why we won easily. That's former Bolivian President Eva Morales. This is President-elect Luis Arce of the MAS party responding to the election results. We have recovered our soul. We have recovered the mysticism of this process. The people have made this possible with their discipline. We recovered this process of change for all. That's President-elect Luis Arce speaking to journalist Ali Vargas, who joins us now from La Paz, Bolivia. We welcome you to Democracy Now!, Ali. Can you talk about the stunning victory um, that has come outright after Sunday's election? Explain who Arce is and what this means for the MAS party and for the ousted um, Bolivian president, Evo Morales. Uh, thank you for having me on and helping to shine a light on what's going on here in Bolivia. It's an extraordinary election. In 2019, Evo Morales uh, won by a margin of 10% or just over 10%. And now we have a margin of over 20% um, with which the left is ahead. So it's an extraordinary election. And Luis Arce, uh, I think you mentioned at the beginning of the show, is a hand-picked successor of Evo Morales. That's because he was the economy minister for almost all of the period, almost all of the past 14 years of Evo Morales' government. 
in which Bolivia went from being the region's poorest country into its fastest growing economy. Even uh, sort of more right-wing outlets such as the Financial Times, the BBC, institutions like the IMF, the World Bank, uh, talked about a Bolivian miracle during Evo Morales' period. For the past, uh, before Evo Morales' absence, for the past six years, Bolivia was the fastest growing economy in the region. So I think what the mass will want to be doing is picking up where they left off. However, a huge challenge now will be the economic crisis caused both by COVID-19, the lockdown measures, but also a series of neoliberal reforms, privatizations, paralyzations of state projects that was taking place before the pandemic hit and has carried on since. So um, the mass, the movement towards socialism, the left, the key, key challenge is rebuilding the economy as they did in 2005. You have to remember that um, Evo Morales and Luis Arce took power in 2005, swept to power on the wave of popular protest in which former President Carlos Mesa, current sort of centrist neoliberal candidate, um, was overthrown. And Bolivia was in a dire economic crisis at the time when Carlos Mesa was president, just taking out IMF loans to pay public sector salaries, to pay teachers' salaries. And out of those, uh, out of that disaster, actually, Luis Arce built what he calls the social, communitarian, um, productive economic model based on the nationalization of natural resources and strategic industries, and then using those profits to invest in infrastructure, public services, uh, social benefits for the people. So he'll be looking to rebuild that model that was, uh, you could say, destroyed this past year under uh, under the current Farah government led by Hanina Anyas. And uh, Oli Vargas, I wanted to ask you specifically, you mentioned Carlos uh, Mesa. Uh, he was the uh, the right-wing candidate, but could there have been a more clear choice for the people of Bolivia given the fact that Mesa had previously been both a vice president and president uh, before Evo Morales came to power. Could you talk about Mesa's record that the voters uh, had to uh, had an ability to judge uh, when they went to the polls? Yeah, in in some ways, Bolivians were were kind of lucky insofar as the two main candidates in the election had both been in power. Uh, pretty recently, within the living memory of most voters, as I said at the beginning, Carlos Mesa governed. Well, he took, he was elected as vice president in 2002, together with the widely hated former president Gonzalo Sanchez de Lozada, who fled to Miami in 2003 after trying to privatize the country's natural gas, uh, and after carrying out uh, a series of, of massacres in the indigenous city of El Alto. He flees to Miami. Carlos Mesa takes power, 2003. And 2003 to 2005 is a period of complete paralysis in Bolivia because Carlos Mesa All right. So that uh, interview you can find on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. And I also wanted to follow that up with uh, another piece of info. Uh, this was shared by Thea Rio Francos, and you can follow Thea at uh, on Twitter at T R I O F R A N C O S. 
uh, solidarity with Chile today, a, his a truly historic opportunity to break free from Pinochet's constitution and democratize state, economy, society. And then there's an update in a massive landslide. Chileans have chosen to rewrite their constitution. Almost 80% of voters decided to leave Pinochet's brutal neoliberal legacy behind and open a new chapter of democracy and equality. Inspiring. So uh, it's good to know that there are positive things happening in other places. All right. Um, going to play some more music here some noise outside so we're going to play some more music here and there's a list a playlist on spotify protest albums of 2020 so here's a couple of songs off of that first up the kids always get it by the neils J.K. Rowling seems to know all about my life Like the way it feels to be misunderstood And the grown-ups can't protect you like they said they would Like they said they would I'm reading Harry Potter and so far The government rejects the fact for being what they are Cause no one wants to see the awful truth the grown-ups keep denying even when there's proof even when there's proof even when there's proof only the kids say we gotta teach ourselves to fight cause the future is ours the kids always get it the kids always get it the kids always get it Watching Greta Thunberg on TV
okay. That was uh, Sepultura with uh, Guardians of Earth before that. The kids always get it by the Neils. It's been an interesting day of transitions uh, music-wise today, for sure. Next, I wanted to share a link for folks, uh, abortionfunds.org. And this is a site that has a lot of information, including Medicaid and abortion, uh, finding a fund, how to find a clinic, common questions, discounts at clinics, safe abortion using pills, uh, news, contact information, um, places where folks can donate as well. Um, so I'm going to click on here and find uh, just to share some information here. So this is nationwide in the U.S., and there's a lot of different resources depending on where you live. So just wanted to share this link again with folks. Yeah, that pretty much sums it up. Again, uh, abortionfunds.org. Okay, that was quick. Um, all right, let's see. What is next up? We should be getting a call in any moment now, so that'll be good. And in New Orleans, oof. Uh, as of, let's see, as of the yesterday, uh, October 29th, uh, something like 80% of New Orleans is without power and many won't have lines repaired for three to five days. For context, if you're not seeing this on the news, Zeta, Z-E-T-A, is the strongest hurricane in recorded history to have its eye directly pass over New Orleans. This was shared by Dylan Mercury. You can follow her. Dylan Wigs Pack. You can follow Dylan at Dylan Mercury on Twitter. Oof. So wanting to share that information. And there's also a, a seminar that happened yesterday that I'd like to share. It's about an hour and a half. So we might be getting to that a little bit later, depending on how we feel. But I did want to promote it so folks can follow along at home um, or, and or watch it. It was shared by Critical Resistance, and you can find it on YouTube Abolitionist Educators Webinar, Campus After Cops, Building Abolitionist Communities. And this was shared yesterday. So again, you can find it on YouTube. And there's also ASL interpreters as well um, on this Zoom meeting. And we're also going to share it on the Weekly Review webpage, which we'll be posting uh, after the show. Also, I do want to take a moment for folks to donate. That would be super cool. We've updated the website a bit. And uh, also we pay dues for it at the studio. And again, this is like a labor of love and do it because I think it's really crucial to have uh, the truth out there in whatever ways it can be. And it helps inform myself and just communicating with more folks and having a better understanding of the world is a really powerful tool in how we act and react to the world around us. So, um, Again, if you're able to donate, I'd really appreciate it. We have a Patreon up. You can find it at our webpage. You can go to either patreon.com forward slash weeklyrev or go to weeklyrev.org and click on the Patreon tab there. Okay. Oh, this is fun. And by fun, I mean not fun. <laughs> this is from Choose Democracy. This might be kind of like a liberal type of thing, but I thought it might be helpful anyway. Yes. So this is from Choose Democracy, and you can follow them at Choose Demo on Twitter. And so they have like a little bit of a video here. Let's uh, let's listen. Really see. We need to call it a coup. If the okay. So since it's uh, there's a narrator there, I'm gonna uh, let them narrate it. 
and uh, gonna bring it up uh, here. Again, you can find this. You can follow them at uh, Choose Demo, and this video, I believe, is also on YouTube. And let's see. We're still playing some music, so we're gonna pause the music. You know, one of those days here. There we go. Ten things you need to know to stop a coup. One, don't expect results on election night. Ballots will come in for days or weeks after election day. Be prepared for confusing weeks and debunked news stories. We need to make sure all votes are counted. Two, we need to call it a coup. If the government stops counting votes, declares someone a winner who actually lost, or allows someone to stay in power who didn't win the election. Three, Coups have been stopped by regular people throughout history all over the world. Four, be ready to act quickly and not alone. Talk to five people who would join you in the streets to protest if there's a coup. Five, focus on values, not individuals. We use the language choosing democracy rather than any specific candidates. Six, convince people not to freeze. History tells us that the way people react in the hours and days after a coup attempt will determine whether or not the coup succeeds. We need everyone to take action. Seven, commit to nonviolence. Nonviolent um, mass resistance and non-cooperation mm, includes mm, strikes, refusing mm, business as usual, I'm and gonna, shutting uh, down society until a democratically elected leader is mm, installed. Eight, mm. yes, a coup can happen in the United States. Whenever there is an order to stop counting votes, we call it a coup. Nine, center and calm, not fear. Be a reliable source. Double check rumors and spread only facts. Breathe deeply, play out scenarios, but don't become captured by them. 10, prepare before the election. Vote, volunteer at the polls, urge elected officials to count every vote before a winner is called and prepare our communities to resist. The best way to stop a coup is never to have one. Are you ready? Sign the pledge at choosedemocracy.us. All right, I uh, agree with most of these. Number seven, I think, is a bit questionable. Um, people need to defend themselves uh, against fascists, and we've already seen that. We haven't even had this uh, election yet, and folks are, as we read earlier, folks are already being assaulted and killed by police. So I think the idea of telling people to be nonviolent or civil and also what people l label as those uh, people need to act in self-defense, whatever that means. So other than that, I thought this was very uh, helpful. Okay. Ugh. Interesting. And uh, okay. I am highlighting all the stories that we've gone through so far. Now we're going to hear from a mother whose son was killed by police. This is the mother of uh, Kelly Hilton.
Aaron Hilton died after his moped crashed into a car. His loved ones say police caused the crash. Protesters are demanding body cam footage of the incident. So that's not the uh... okay. So this was from uh, AJ Plus. You can follow on Twitter at AJ Plus. <sighs> Speaking of uh, defunding police, there's another article. I'll share the link here for folks. This is in the New Yorker. We should we should still defund the police. Cuts to public services that might mitigate poverty and promote social mo mobility have become a perpetual excuse for more policing by Kianga Yamada Taylor. And this came out on August 14th, 2020. It's in the New Yorker. And uh, it's a good article here. So we'll be posting that link as well. Oof. Oh, goodness. And I'll click on another link here. And there's another article from the Marshall Project. What 2,392 incarcerated people think about hashtag defund the police. Um, Americans are grappling with intensifying calls to remake their criminal justice system. We ask people behind bars to weigh in. So I feel like I need, a, I myself need a bit of a break here. I'm going to play some more music and hopefully we'll have our folks call in uh, shortly. Just open up Spotify here. So we're going to do some more songs from Rips for Reproductive Justice. And okay, here's a song by a band called Book of Sand, and the song is called Seek Out Your Oppressors and Murder Them. Sounds about uh, my mood right now.
executive decision. I like the title of this song, however, it's, uh, it's a bit gloomy even for me. So let's take another one. Here's an L7 cover. Fast and Fight. needs to be defunded. No, that would be very bad. Well, Planned Parenthood kills babies, so abortion is only 2% of Planned Parenthood services. I don't care. I don't want any of my taxpayer money to go to abortions. None of your taxpayer money goes to abortions. What do you mean? The Hyde Amendment makes it impossible for any federal funding to go towards abortion services. What? Yeah, but let's say Planned Parenthood is defunded. Less people will have access to other forms of contraception that they would use before an abortion. People who are anemic or have endometriosis may otherwise die because they don't have access to birth control. I thought people just use birth control to stop pregnancy. No, not at all. Either way, less access to contraceptives would guarantee a rise in the maternal mortality rate. So if you want to kill actual people, then yeah, defund Planned Parenthood. Parenthood needs to be defunded. All right, and welcome back to Weekly Review. We have a caller on the line. Thanks for calling in. Yeah, thank you for having me. Sure. So you're welcome to introduce yourself if you'd like. 
Okay. Uh, hi, my name is Jess. I'm a CCSF student, um, and I am very concerned about this upcoming election. Um, City College has four uh, open seats for Board of Trustees, and it's very important for everyone in, in the community to know who is running and um, what students, who students actually support. We do not want the incumbent, uh, President uh, Chanel Williams and uh, Vice President Tom Temprano, because they have not been responding to student needs and mm -hmm. equity demands by our black student union, and um, they helped drove our school in the current uh, position it's now. Um, we're now in advanced monitoring by the state, and we're on risk of losing uh, accreditation. Oh, no. And um, I know it's horrible. I mean, like, the last few Board <sighs> of Trustees meetings have been nuts because they're going to cut maybe $10 million of teacher jobs. <sighs> and um, they're only cutting, like, um, uh, less, less administrator jobs, but they're actually, like, um, hiring more administrators. So there's a lot of administrators with, like, 200K salaries, <sighs> and yet – our students don't have ESL classes or trades classes or basic classes that they need. And it's kind of ridiculous what's happening at City College because some people are using it as a stepping stone for their political careers. Mm. And we're not seeing people actually be responsible to the stakeholders of the school, which are students. Yeah. And we're asking for something very basic, like we need resource centers, like we need a resource center for the African-American um, students in the Black Student Union, and we need working computers for them. Right. Like, why do we have to, like, um, make a demand list and demand all summer and protest and, you know, actively organize when, you know, the trustees can easily meet together and make a solution? Like, they met in the summer to uh, unanimously rename a building that, uh, about uh, after somebody, but yet they could not meet to help students fill the equity demands that we that we deserve um yeah it's kind of upsetting because as city college students we see a lot of people get endorsed and then we're like do the people know what's happening and when we try to speak up for like the voting record of the incumbents they're like oh no this person's nice and i was like just because they opened a bar like maybe 10 years ago mm -hmm. it does not mean that they're a great trustee yes they need to be responsible for their voting record, they voted to give Chancellor Rocha a $340,000 golden parachute during a pandemic. Oh. They voted to close. They voted to close Fort Mason campus, a beloved arts campus that actually provides extra funding for the school because we offer a location in a different area of the city. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just like ridiculous what other things are happening. Like they closed down the airport campus, and they're trying to. Uh, push it into the Evans campus and oh. basically Oakdale campus in the Bayview is non-functional. Oh. And so like they talk about these equity uh, issues and they talk about serving all San Franciscans, but like, what about our Bayview residents and our trade school students? Yeah. Like there are no facilities that they can go to. The library is barely open four hours a week when it wasn't in quarantine. Mm -hmm. And we just want like better performance from these people who are taking up spots yes. on the board of trustees that could be serving students. Right. And um, so I'm just fired up. And I know I heard like the statistics, uh, like 52% of San uh, registered voters in San Francisco have yet to vote. Oh. And so like I'm trying to galvanize as many students and San Franciscans as possible to vote for someone like that we support, Anita Martinez. Yes. Who has like 28 years of 
education experience as a teacher, as an administrator. She has financial leadership. She's been listening to students and going to protests and using her campaign every step of the way to highlight and amplify mm -hmm. the issues that we need help with at City College. And so there's four seats people can vote up to four, and I'm just encouraging people to at least vote for Nita Martinez yes. as their first choice. Yes. And then they can vote for whoever else that they believe. But we need her now. We cannot wait two years you know, for another election. City College future is on the line. And, um, yeah, we just appreciate any, anyone that listens because, like, we all get to benefit from, from our community college, our city college. And now that we're having to, you know, have the recovery of post, you know, COVID or while we're in COVID, I, I found city college as a, as a savior for me, for my mental health and yes. for my ability to get, you know, more job skills to hopefully be employed. And I don't want those opportunities to go away for everyone else. Right. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's it's such a, an important resource, and I I myself have taken a few classes there, and I've really enjoyed them. I've learned so much, and I've also made really great connections with people throughout the years. And it's such a, just yeah. a valuable resource, and I really wish folks could recognize it for what it is. And even the the history of of the school and folks having to you know, push for more, for more classes and to be, for, to, to ensure that classes are accredited. Yes. I know like our history of the school is amazing. Like we are the first, one of the first schools in the nation to have an African-American studies department. We were the first school in the nation um, to get like a Filipino studies department. Hmm. And we've had like, um, you know, uh, over 50 years ago, we had like amazing student leaders that started a lot of programs that I benefit from now and seeing, you know, programs don't be supported the way that they should and what would really help all our, all our students. It's, it's pretty sad. So it's kind of like everyone's getting concerned about the national election, but yeah. I just wanted to point out like down ballot issues yes. and, if people don't have the energy to research, they can trust in active CCF students that care and that have been fighting. And um, we just want the same things that everyone else has the opportunity to learn because it should not be, you know, uh, afforded to people who can afford like expensive private institutions mm -hmm. or who have the connections. Yes. It's supposed to be for all. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for having us. Absolutely. I don't know what else is. We have a lot more information, but we just don't know like what you want to hear. But it's it's um, really up to you. Like a lot of this, like I'm, you know, I'm learning, and I feel like there is just unfortunately the conversation is so focused, as you mentioned, just on like on national politics and the and the presidential election instead of local politics. So I think the more information yeah. that we know about what's happening here, um, if folks are informed, I I personally have already voted. Um, However, there are, I know, like a lot of folks who are still yet to vote. So I think the more information we can get out there, the better. Yeah. Um, also, one of the things that we're kind of pushing for as CCSF students is um, for people to vote yes on Prop 15. Yes. Which yes. will help bring a lot of uh, funding to public education and also to like community services and healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, and we're pushing yes for Prop 16 which will make it more equitable for uh, everyone to have a better future and more opportunities in education and contracting and um, public sector jobs. Yes. And um, a lot of our students also vote no on 22. Oh, yeah. Because a lot, yeah, of, us yeah, are, a lot of us are gig workers. Right. And um, some of our students are like, 
do you know that they spent over 185 million dollars on these ads mm -hmm. to trick people to mm -hmm. vote yes and yet they couldn't afford to pay a couple dollars extra for you know the essential workers in the pandemic yeah and um it's like great that we have it's unfortunate that we're having so many problems right now, but it's so great because we can actually make a difference yes. in the last few days of voting. And like the voting polls are open and um, I, I myself, they're volunteering for, I mean, uh, not volunteering, working for the first time as a poll worker. Mm -hmm. And I think it's like such an empowering thing for all San Franciscans to experience and to to hopefully like get people more amped up about participating in different ways. Yes. And in the summer, like with all the protests, we got a lot more students involved. Like, oh, great. And uh, w our, our school actually has a CCSF contingent for Justice for Sean because Sean Montetorosa mm. was a CCSF student ah. and his sisters are CCSF students. Mm. And we have a couple teachers and students that have formed a group that constantly have been coming out for the Montarosa sisters for their calls of justice against the Vallejo PD that mm -hmm. um, murdered their brother mm -hmm. and have been like scapegoating all the the responsibility of being charged um and um some of our students with the Monterosa sisters were arrested uh in front of Gavin, um, governor gavin newsom's house mm. and we think it's ridiculous that you know these sisters and these uh, peaceful protesters were arrested for like different various charges of disturbing the peace before the officer that murdered Sean Montetarosa, yeah. you know, was actually charged. Absolutely. And so we're getting like more and more students realizing like, oh, systemic racism, you know, there's a lot of issues about underfunding and mm -hmm. uh, classism and elitism and how can we actually affect change besides protesting and giving public comments to, you know, these different like civic bodies and we're like oh we can vote we can mobilize if we get enough people to vote maybe we can outvote you know some of the smaller you know uh special interests that yes. are trying to work against us <laughs> as yeah. people and it also just makes me think of how stupid it is that the police get so much funding when education does not and the oh police end up causing yes. so much harm to communities and schools end up helping people yet the schools are the ones who have to constantly cut courses and lay off teachers instead of the police who who literally kill people uh, instead yes. of them getting laid off. Yes, and it's just it's so ridiculous because we sat in like all the public meetings in the summer and we waited like eight hours to get onto the comment line and there was like more people like yes. trying to say defund the police. Oh yeah, you know? yeah. These are the statistics. Oh yeah, people should definitely vote yes on D, you know, to get rid of the arbitrary minimum of sheriffs that they have to employ. You know, because the all the associations have done shady stuff about like, let's put a minimum so they can always like fund us. But now we can have a chance to at least take some of the power back. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's it's interesting because we just hosted like um, with other students this um, consistent resistance art protest, and people can check it out at consistentresistance.org, uh -huh. and it has a digital gallery too. But it was great to see like um, people, some people starting the conversation about like injustice, how to hold the leadership accountable for our city, but also how do we actively defund the police, or how do we um, support other uh, other people through intercultural solidarity mm -hmm. and uplift the people who have been fighting the fight for a long time. And we had lots of different speakers, but um, it's encouraging to know that now it's like a continuing movement 
and no one's stopping because no one wants it to go back to what it was before we we got conscious in a sense um yeah it's been a very interesting time to be a student and like you know getting involved in city college and seeing like um all the democratic clubs mobilize mm-hmm. and seeing like all the flyers and learning for the first time we're like oh yeah read the little bottom of all these like you know advertisements yes. see where the money comes from yes yeah <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's good to read. <laughs> it's good to question. Very and important. It's, it's good to do your own research and, and support your community because there are other people banking on us not doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And for um, fellow students who are interested in getting involved, is there a place that they can connect with you and or other folks? Yes. Yes. Um, so there's a lot of cool organizations at City College that are doing some great things. Um, we have on Instagram and uh, Facebook, uh, CCSF Collective. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a great arts activism group, and then they're, in, they're doing a lot of amazing organizing and putting on digital events and virtual events and community building. Um, they're participating in an event with uh, the Monterosa Sisters, uh, Justice for Sean, mm-hmm. um, on Monday, and it's helping to get out the vote. Um, in honor of Sean Monteterosa, and um, people are invited to come to this uh, physical place as well and bring offerings um, and and share in community and mobilize and um, vote because he doesn't have a chance to vote. And then um, there's other groups like CCSF Student Says on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find out like information about the school, things that are happening, um, support services, but also like things outside in the greater community that affect us. And um, there's so many other groups like Students Making a Change, um, uh, a student council. Like if anyone wants to get involved in any capacity, just feel free to plug into any of those channels and then message uh, the organizers and we'll be happy to uh, direct you. Great, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Absolutely. We really appreciate your support and the ability to um, have a conversation and, and include more people in because City College is such a great place, but we just need everyone's help to keep it, a, keep it uh, you know, doing well mm-hmm. or as well as it can be right now. Yes, yes. Yeah, well, you're always welcome to, to stay in touch and to, to call back and really appreciate you sharing all this information with us. Yeah, will do. And if you ever need anything fabricated, we have the hookup <laughs> because City College taught us how to do, like, digital fabrication, and we're trying to, like, spread more community good out there by like making signs or like supporting other groups that um that that align with us thank you so much yeah absolutely thank you okay have a great day you too okay Bye. bye all right big thanks to jess and all the students at ccsf for sharing this information and it's it's so crucial just to have an understanding of you know what's at stake in the local elections so we're gonna take a bit of a music break and then I'm going to start playing the, the panel that I mentioned earlier, and I did want to give credit to the, the video I was playing earlier, and that's by I am underscore Afro, aphrodisiac, and that's uh, I, I am underscore A-F-R-O-D-I-S-I-A-C, and that was about the Hyde Amendment and how there's a lot of information about abortion rights out there. So I wanted to share that, and you can follow this person on Twitter. All right, so I'm going to play some more music.
the uh, riffs for reproductive justice is something else. Oh, yeah, and we're also playing stuff from the other. Oh, there's a lot of music. It's a very uh, last-minute, put-together music selection today. There's the protest albums of 2020. Let's see what's... Uh, uh, okay, how about uh, Pearl Jam? They seem... Uh, <laughs> them I have definitely heard of. So play some Pearl Jam, and uh, we'll be back in a bit. Stay tuned.
have a do have a yeah, it's pretty loud. We do have a bit of a another action item folks can take, and this is from uh, Talia Levin, who has a Talia Lavin, excuse me, who has a book out. You can follow Talia on Twitter at chick underscore in underscore Kiev, and uh, Talia has tweeted. Uh, in the last hour, uh, worried about violence during and after the election? One tech company that's facilitating violent right-wing organizing, the walkie-talkie app Zello, and that's Z-E-L-L-O, which enables armed far-right militias to organize on their platform. Here's a thread with action items for you to take. And so there's um, a thread, and again, I've I retweeted this. You can follow me on Twitter at R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-E-R. It's also linked in the Weekly Rev webpage, weeklyrev.org, and or you can follow uh, Talia Lavin, at chick underscore in underscore Kiev on Twitter and find these action items that folks can take. So that could include um, joining the platform and uh, and you can uh, tag Zello and pressure them to oust militia groups and you can tag businesses that Zello follows and ask why they're working with them and there's a lot more information as two ways that folks can um, participate. Also, Militia Watch has an article on them as well. And so lots of info there. But again, um, it's something that helps me out of my depression is when I take action in one way or another. And there's lots of ways that folks can take action. So I wanted to share that. All right. Now I'm going to start playing this panel discussion, which is about an hour and a half, and we have about 15 minutes left on the show, so clearly we're not going to get too far, but if folks want to check it out, again, you can find it on YouTube, Abolitionist Educators Webinar, Campus After Cops, Building Abolitionist Communities, and again, there's an ASL interpreter in the video as well. Oh, and there's some more music playing. Let's, uh, let's pause that for a moment, and uh, here we go. Today. Thanks, Nick. We've been working with critical resistance staff, including National Development Director Jeff, Jess Heaney, and I'd also like to thank uh, Sung Kim, who is also helping with Tech Today. Our other co-sponsors are Scholars for Social Justice, of which Beth Risky is a part, Faculty Association of UC Riverside, and the American Studies Association Annual Conference Freedom Courses will be also um, publishing this teach-in, which will be available on ASA's YouTube channel um, in the month of November. I'd also like to especially thank our ASL interpreters for this event, Harley Jones and C.M. Hall from Fingers Crossed Interpreting. I just wanna also bring your attention to our third teach-in, which is going to take place on November 12th, same time on Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, and invite you all to follow us um, in our current campaign that some of us are a part of, Cops Off Campus. Um, we can be um, found on social media at UCFTP. So at this point, I would like to hand the mic over to my fabulous co-organizer, uh, Erica Miners. Great. Um, welcome all. Uh, again, I'm Erica Miners. Just, uh, Excited to be here with um, so many wonderful comrades today. We are, of course, at another critical juncture. This abolitionist moment has been brought to us by years of Black, Brown, Indigenous, and other people of color organizing 
usually led by women and or queer folks and often at a significant personal cost. Demands to defund police and invest in community, particularly to fund black teachers to use the frame of the, of, of the Black Youth Project reverberates from Chicago to Los Angeles, from Toronto to Sao Paulo. The collective work of many has made abolition imaginable and tangible. Largely propelled by students, defund police campaigns are unfurling across K through 16 campuses in the United States. The overwhelming majority of these campaigns demand abolition. Often working in tandem with networks off campus, campaigns are actively working to redefine, reclaim, and repurpose safety, and also strive to create spaces that are safer for all people, particularly for Black, Indigenous, undocumented, and gender nonconforming folks, without police and all the affiliated entities that also do the work of coercion and surveillance. So abolition has always been about what we want and need as much as it is about what we will dismantle and remove. This is particularly important as we talk today about campaigns to defund police, removing police and immigrations and customs enforcement from our campuses and communities is only part of the abolitionist equation as the organizers on our call today know intimately with these wonderful scholars and activists who've been doing the collective work for a while, our teach-in today offers both examples of organizing at the campus, local, city, or regional level to remove police from campuses um, and also surfaces necessary analytic engagements. What do we learn from doing this work collectively? So our conversation today includes Beth Ritchie, uh, University of Illinois, Chicago, um, Dr. Beth Ritchie is the head of the Department of Criminology, Law and Justice, and also a professor of African American Studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Uh, Beth is the author of Arrested Justice, Black Women, Violence in America's Prison Nation, and also Compelled to Crime, the Gender Entrapment of Black Battered Women. Beth is also a founding member of Insight. Um, Paula X. Rojas, uh, Communities of Color United. Uh, Paola has worked as a grassroots organizer for over 25 years on issues of gender violence, community alternatives to policing, and reproductive and economic justice. Uh, Paola has co-founded several community-based organizations, including Sister to Sister in New York City, and was a member of the National Leadership Collective for Insight. In Austin, Texas, she has been involved in launching CCU, a volunteer citywide coalition, Communities of Color United for Racial Justice. CCU has been creating an intergenerational community, challenging city government, and creating a people's budget, demanding the defunding of police and deep reinvestment in health, low-income, housing, and other, align other areas aligned with a collective vision for wellness and justice. Eric Stanley, um, who's at UC Berkeley, um, Eric Stanley is an assistant professor in the Department of Gender and Women's Studies at UC Berkeley and is the co-editor of Captive Genders and Trapdoor and also the co-director of the films Criminal Queers and Homotopia. Eric's forthcoming book, Atmospheres of Violence, Antagonism and the Trans Queer Ungovernable is forthcoming from 
Duke University Press in 2021. And Azadeh uh Director of Underground Scholars. Um, Azadeh is the director of the Underground Scholars Initiative at UC Berkeley, a program to support incarcerated, formerly incarcerated, and systems impacted individuals. Azadeh has worked in leadership roles as a lawyer, as an advocate, as a researcher, uh, with the Legal Services for Prisoners with Children and the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. As the daughter of two formerly incarcerated parents, Azadeh is deeply familiar with the intergenerational impacts of imprisonment and has worked as an activist and strategist in anti-prison activism for 20 years. So welcome participants for our kitchen. I'm gonna turn it back to Setsu. Thank you, Erica. So we would like to uh, just let you know that our format today is for the remainder of our uh, one and a half hours. We have prepared some targeted questions for our participants in order to cover as much ground as possible. And we hope to get through just two rounds of questions and then turn to engaging each other and uh, some of your questions uh, from those of you who are uh, with us today. So I wanna start off today's discussion uh, by posing a question to uh, my colleague and comrade, Eric Stanley. Um, so Eric, if you can get us going by describing your organizing work both across and beyond campus related to the abolition of policing. For example, how did it start? What are, what are the aims? What language are you using? And what campus groups um, are, you, are shaping and leading this work? So if you could lead us off, Eric, thank you. Sure, thank you all so much. Um, thank you to the interpreters and all the work, um, all the labor that it takes to put these things on. And I'm really excited to share this space with all of you all. Um, so I'm part of the Cops Off Campus Coalition, which is a group of undergraduates, graduates, staff, faculty from the University of California. Um, we're also working in coalition with CSU configurations. Um, and we in part grew out of those supporting grad student demands for a COLA, which is a cost of living adjustment. So it was the graduate student strikes last spring, last winter and spring. Um, and we carry that demand into our current work. And so that's really important as an abolitionist demand. This specific iteration of the coalition reformulated kind of the end of the summer um, with a deadline of the end of this academic year to have the cops off of UC campuses. And so we kicked off our campaign on October 1st with direct actions planned and or executed at all 10 campuses. So that was really exciting. Um, but we do not simply want to shift the issue of police terror onto other communities, and thus we are an explicitly abolitionist organization, right? Importantly, we know that the jurisdiction of the UCPD is incredibly large, right? It's almost all of California. It's pretty much like the, Cal the uh, highway patrol, essentially. And that, massive, and that the massive amounts of the violence they deploy is against those they imagine to be, quote, off campus, or quote unquote non-students, right? And that's specifically violence targeting black and brown houseless people that live around UC campuses. Um, just one small example of that is UC Hastings, which is here in San Francisco, that campus recently sued San Francisco to force the removal of unhoused people's tents and the tenderloin um, as they were ramping up a kind of major capital campaign, they're building a bunch of new buildings, right? And so in the middle of a global pandemic, the UCPD, the SFPD, and the Department of Public Works kind of gathered together to evict thousands of people, right? 
another important work of the coalition's, another important part of the coalition's work is knowing that we all reproduce punitive and policing logics, right? Gender normativity, ableism, et cetera, on campus, in our classrooms, and with each other. And so our work is not only about abolishing the UCPD, it is about that, um, but we are also working to transform our social relations, which indeed means the radical trans transformation or perhaps abolition of the university, right? That's a question. Um, so that we might bring into being a more inhabitable space of collective learning. So that's what we're doing. Thank you for uh, getting us started there, Eric. Um, thank you for kind of laying the, uh, out the landscape of the kind of work, political work um, we're collectively involved in. I wanna um, turn the next question to uh, Beth Ritchie and ask, um, ask you, Beth, in what ways have the administration and other campus en entities pushed back on police abolition organizing going on um, over there? Chicago, how have administrators and other campus constituencies tried to absorb appropriate deform or accommodate demands for police defunding and abolition? And what was anticipated and what was not? So if you could talk about the struggle over there. Thank you. I think you're on mute. Sorry about that. Um, I don't know how many times you can't remember to get off mute. Well, hey everybody, thank you so much for um, for this opportunity. Um, Setsu, Erica, Dylan, all of you who put this together, the tech people who I obviously have to rely on a lot. Um, it's really a pleasure to be on this panel with so many people whose work I respect and admire so much. And Eric already got us off to the kind of important start that we uh, rely on Eric to do, so thanks. Um, okay, so to the question of resistance. Um, yes, we have experienced resistance, pushback, appropriation, co-optation, all of that uh, from my view was expected from campus administration in response to the demands to defund the police. Um, and in some ways, um, why wouldn't we expect universities to respond the way that other institutions have? In fact, um, the what did we expect question, I think, is a chance for us to think about how universities are part of the larger neoliberal apparatus that relies on the carceral state to sort of hold itself up in, in many ways, like uh, Eric just mentioned. So if for a moment we suspend the discussion about the academic agenda, um, of a university. It's important to, I think, think about the other functions of a university, and this was covered really beautifully in the prior teach-in, uh, but just to bring it into this space, um, universities like plantations, right? They work places that are hierarchically organized, exploit low-paid labor of graduate students, staff, adjunct faculty. They're physical spaces that occupy um, lands that either disrupt urban communities or they're like enclaves of private resources in rural hard to get places, right? Um, they're also places that consolidate power. And for me, one of the best examples of institutions that reproduce privilege 
and they rely on carceral strategies, many of which um, Eric talked about, carceral strategies that are characteristic of those institutions. So, of course, there was um, pushback. Uh, we uh, expected it, we should have expected it. And um, for me, the detail in that that's important distinguishing universities is first, um, the defund demands weren't um, new demands on many campuses. It's, we have new attention to it, but they weren't new demands. They followed the work of really student organizers, at least at UIC on my campus, who for years were engaged in abolition work outside of the university. Um, struggles to abolish cash bail, to not build new prisons, to reinvest in communities, look for alternatives. People had been doing that work for a long time. Administrators pay, started to pay attention uh, more recently to the work embedded in the BIPOC student demands related to racial justice. And I think this is an important, for me, an important way to understand what's happening. When universities like corporations and foundations and cultural institutions began to feel compelled over the summer to be more accountable to black um, communities, black people after the uprisings, I think they were a little caught by surprise that the central demand was to defund campus cops. Uh, that is, they expected, you know, demands for um, more black studies courses or financial aid or hiring of more black faculty, but I don't think they understood that a central demand would be to defund their police forces. Um, and I think that's because they think of their police, university police, as different than other police. They're kinder, they are maybe more accountable, they're safety oriented. This is what they think, not what the reality is we know. But they also answer to university administrators rather than to like the government, as if those are two really different things. So what I saw happening is students who've been active in abolition struggles in community escalating their demands on campus, as if to say no cops in Chicago means no cops at the University of Illinois Chicago, no cops anywhere even where I'm working for my degree. And so I think part of how administrators responded was influenced by um, initially a kind of superficial commitment to responding to challenges around racial violence and persistent anti-Black racism. And I think they didn't know that they were negotiating with a group of committed students who were abolitionists who brought a lot of their abolition anti-prison, anti-cop organizing to the struggle. And so um, part of what I have seen happen is they've asked uh, faculty and students to participate in advisory boards to like participate in improving policing on campus, not knowing that we have values about reformist reform. And they've asked us to, they've used a kind of typical academic delay tactic, like we need more data before we can move forward. Um, they've offered deals. Um, so what about if we have university police without uniforms or if they don't carry weapons? Uh, what about if we have a member of a student patrol in the car or we do sensitivity training with recruits? And in some instances, and I wanna pay particular attention to this, in some instances I've seen a kind of counter organizing where administration has said, before we do anything, we have to engage other constituencies on our campus, um, like gender and women's studies centers, for example, who, um, you know, I think they, suspected would uh, rely on their carceral feminist instincts to say we have to have cops, it's the only way we'll feel safe. 
or they've turned to criminology programs like the one I am the head of to ask us for some kind of research that would dis uh, distinguish campus police from other kind of policing. So yes, there have been lots of ways that administration has pushed back. And I think in the end, what's happened is they've underestimated the power of student-led abolition movements on campus. I love that um, response, Beth. It um, just reminds me about all the collective kind of organizing that's been happening for you know decades, and just seeing the impact of. I'm thinking about Eric and um, comrades' work with Gay Shame. I'm thinking about all the strong work in Chicago with Project Nia that has educated up generations of particularly young people of color organizers, and really. Um, just having that be centered on campus in this moment. So just um, loving that um, framework. Um, I'm just gonna move to um, Azadeh um, um, to invite you to contribute and um, just sort of building on this discussion. Um, how do we sim simultaneously organize to get cops off campus and also build the kind of communities with the university we need and desire? Um, um, can you offer some examples of the collective work that you're engaged in? And particularly, how does the experience um, of students um, with the underground scholars um, guide us in this work? Thank you so much for having me and for that question. Um, I direct the, the underground scholars program at UC Berkeley. We are a program that works with incarcerated and formerly incarcerated students, helping them get to the UC. Um, and I think part of what is important about building this kind of community um, at, at, a camp, at a college campus, the kind of community we desire, is I desire to work at a university that's accessible to people who are incarcerated and formerly incarcerated. And I think um, Berkeley Underground Scholars and shout out to our partners at Project Rebound have done a really good job of doing that and it's still not enough. It can't just be one program on a campus that's doing the work of making the university accessible to people who have historically been um, you know, denied access in ways that are directly tied to um, policing and prisons and punishment. Um, so I think that is um, something that's really important for us. And to me, that creates more of a possibility on these campus for the abolition of police because not only are our students, um, you know, students that have experienced criminalization and incarceration, very well suited to, to talk about the impacts and the experience of that, but also because they've experienced the police um, and the carceral systems in the ways that they have, they are also very 